the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 2. It is a delight to bring back to the airwaves of Phoenix, Daniel Buck, education expert. His book, What is Wrong with Our Schools? The Ideology Impoverishing Education in America and How We Can Do Better for Our Students. I should also mention he is a editorial and policy associate at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, probably the smartest think tank there is on education reform. You can follow him on Twitter, at Mr. Daniel Buck. Daniel, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back on. It's always a pleasure. You won't, you, there's no reason you would know this, but I have to tell you, probably I quote no one as much as I quote you when I talk education reform and education problems from that great Wall Street Journal piece you did. Uh, must have been about a year, year and a half ago now. Uh, talking mm-hmm. about it was, what's it was be- last summer. Yeah, I quote that probably at least mm, two or three times a month. I mean, I think everything anyone needs to know is in that. <laughs> well, not to take away from your book, but I, which is great. I think it's that that piece is seminal. It's seminal. That book, I basically distilled down yeah. my book into eight hundred words yeah. and ran it in the opinion section. It's probably one of the best things I've written. So it, I'll agree with you there. It, well, it's one of the best things that has been written on education in a long time. And back in the day, the Wall Street Journal—I mean, before social media went crazy. You know, there would be these long pieces in the Wall Street Journal or good think pieces in the Wall Street Journal that would have durability. They'd last for a while. People would talk about them for months and months and months. This is one of those pieces. It was that good, Mr. Buck. It really was. So anyway. I'm flattered. Yeah. Well, I just it's worth it's worth pointing out. I hope more people read it. Your most recent piece with uh, Thomas Fordham, Stop Calling Them book bans. It's been a really interesting thing. You know, you've borne witness to a lot of the corruption in our language and a lot of casual throwing around of labels. This is a big one. Um, The book ban, the book banning that the parental movement for rights, parental rights and education movement has been subjected to. Tell us what you're getting at here, sir. I wrote this piece because I was so frustrated by watching the media over and over and over and over again refer to these book bans, and they're not book bans. There's a a difference between a school changing a curriculum, you know, taking a book out of a library, um, someone like Target or Amazon deplatforming a book, and a government, you know, black bagging somebody for having prohibited material. Those later two, those are bans because you're limiting everyone's access to them. Changing a book on a curriculum, though, that's not a ban. When I was a teacher, I did that all the time. You read a book one year, kids love it. The next year, it just tanks and burns, and you decide to switch it out for something else. I've done it hundreds of times. It's not a ban. But the left wants to call all of these things banned because it makes it easier to then villainize groups like Moms for Liberty or any conservative teacher that speaks up because they're the the mean baddies that are trying to burn books and ban books when really they're just trying to keep, you know, in some cases, very explicit and vulgar material out of kids' classrooms. I want to come back to explicit and vulgar in a moment. 
But I also want to put in a word here to the notion of how these book, quote unquote, book bans are quantified. You know, a lot of people don't quite understand what constitutes the the numbers or the or the volume of which at which these things are being done. It can merely, in some cases, be not what you said, but merely someone asking that a book be moved to another section. That can trigger it in a library, many of which are in public schools. Yes. Uh, yes, I can think of the article that you're referencing. Yeah, um, this, you'll have yeah. one or two parents request a or three or four parents request that a book gets taken off off a shelf maybe because there's again a very explicit image in it and then it's reported as this book has been banned right. four times right and the number is made up and the idea again that it's a ban is completely fabricated right another condition for getting labeled a ban is moving a book not necessarily out of the curriculum but maybe at a section in a perhaps bookstore, but more often a library, to a different section. That can trigger the phrase banning a book, too. Yes. There's this great story. Uh, Amanda Gorman, who performed a poem at, if I'm not mistaken, at Biden's inauguration. Yes, that's right. And that's her, right. Yeah. her book got moved to the back of Barnes & Noble because they just were changing up where they were placing books. Yeah. Um, and she went on a long rant on social media about how all of her books are being banned and you know she's an abysmal poet but man she's great at getting book sales yes nothing's gonna nothing's gonna sell your book like claiming that it's been banned and you make a really good point daniel if i might you make a really good point about this notion that a book is banned a ban means unavailable and you know the books that are under discussion, the kinds of the kinds of books that you you might mention, like Gender Queer or Lawn Boy, I think uh, when Harry becomes Sally, these kinds of these are easily available. You can get them within twenty four hours or less on Amazon. You can get there's a the main bookstore here in Phoenix uh, has all these books, and it's at the intersection of four major public high schools, and it has all of those books in the young reader section. I mean, the notion that these books are banned. I, I sometimes want to ask people uh, you may know of, like uh, perhaps Abigail Schreier or mm-hmm. Bethany Mandel. You know how 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 do their books stock? Do those books get do those books get stocked in bookstores and libraries? The answer is they don't. You want to talk about a ban? It really, if it is a ban, goes in the other direction way too many times. I think. Yeah, I find there's a. The- dark ironic hilarity to Barnes and Noble setting up a band band book section <laughs> right. for nineteen nineteen ninety five a pop on display right books you can't in. buy. Here you go on sale. Right. <laughs> yeah. Give us your money. Yes. Um it's just so many lies to push to push sales and agendas. Uh regarding Abigail Schreier, Bethany Mandel's book, something I touch on briefly in this article at the Fordham Institute is if anyone's truly banning books or at least close to it, it's the left. They're the ones who are trying to get books de-platformed from Amazon or Target or Barnes & Noble. They're the ones that are trying to keep books out of everyone's hand. The right is doing pretty basic things like saying, hey, this book has the F word in it. Maybe we shouldn't have it in an elementary school library. Yeah, well, I mean, that would... 
maybe that would be welcome if that's all it had. I've looked at some of these books. It's far more. <laughs> you have too, and I know I know you're 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 being de- de- decorous here, but it's a lot more than just the F word on some of these things. It's a weird thing, though. You're a, you're a teacher, and I guess uh, a retired teacher now, and an education scholar. It is a weird thing, Daniel, that. We have just seemed, or a part of this country, or a part of the ideological measure of this country, has just kind of blown totally past this notion of age appropriate. I was saying to someone the other day, I well remember the debate over something called the V-chip in the late 90s that parents could put in their televisions to make sure their kids weren't getting shows that were age inappropriate for them. And Bill Clinton was touting this. And we all kind of understood it. We all knew what age inappropriate was. We all respected it. We all knew that young minds shouldn't be subject to – that's why we have rating systems with the movies. You wouldn't show an R movie in a fifth grade class any more than you would teach American history uh, by showing um, A Birth of a Nation, let us say, the old KKK movie. And that wouldn't be considered banning because you wouldn't show it, right? Um, Entirely. Um, I think about my own classroom. Uh, I read Frederick Douglass's autobiography. Yeah, tell that. That's schoolers. good. Do that. Yeah, good. And and I read. It's a great book, and I think every American should read it before they graduate high school. But there's a scene where a man's head is blown off, and it talks about his brains floating down the river. There's a woman who's raped and then whipped while the um, slave master is screaming that she's a b-word. Over and over and over and over again. I'm trying to be a little bit decorous in Thanks. my language, Thanks. and I read this and kind of realized, like, Ugh, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have read this with middle schoolers. Doesn't mean I think kids shouldn't read it, but it just it was like this is too violent and too visceral for their little twelve year old minds to read. They don't need to be exposed to this right away. So I read A Raisin in the Sun instead. Yeah. I switched out one book for another because I I was a newer teacher and I realized this is just too much for them. I didn't ban Frederick Douglass's autobiography. I just thought, you know what? They might be able be a bit better able to handle this kind of graphic content when they're sophomore or juniors in high school. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not this year. Maybe it's better for you in a year or two. It seems to me responsible. Can you stay one more segment or do you got to run? Oh, I can stay one more second. Thank you. Great. I appreciate it. Daniel Buck is my guest. His book, it's a great one. What is wrong with our schools? The ideology impoverishing, excuse me, the ideology impoverishing education in America and how we can do better for our students. He's with the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, and uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Mr. Daniel Buck. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Daniel Buck is my guest. He's an education expert with the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. His most recent book, What is Wrong with Our Schools? The Ideology Impoverishing Education in America and How We Can Do Better for Our Students. Daniel, if I, if I might just shift it a little bit to what's implied in your um, in part of your subtitle of your book, it seems to me the last four, five, six months – well, let me start it this way. I have been saying, and I would love your thoughts on this, that there seems to be two versions of what education – what constitutes education in America these days. There's the version that – call it traditionalist if you want – that thinks you send your kids to school to learn a little math, learn a little reading, learn a little science, maybe learn a little bit about your country – 
And there's this other version which seems to support the notion that none of that is as crucial. It may not even matter very much so long as we can get the kids to think um, ideologically. So much of an education movement that believes in really propagandizing children, that there's an ideological purpose to education, if you will, that it should be, in the old phrase of an old book, a subversive activity, if you will. And you kind of, if you agree with me or not, I'd love to hear, but if you agree with me, you kind of see this playing out over the last four or five months when we've been seeing all these terrible national report cards and testing scores and achievement levels on so many things, while you see the NEA and the AFT just going nowhere in that direction, not wanting to talk about achievement levels or outcomes at all whatsoever, but doubling down on, you know, what, for lack of a better word, might be progressive DEI ideology kind of beating up on conservative stuff. Is that what's going on right now? Two versions of education fighting themselves out in, in the public in the public spaces? I mean, that's essentially exactly what's happening right now. I'm looking at the book on my bookshelf right now, Teaching is a Subversive Activity that he, you referenced. Yeah, well, it, what, I'm, uh, he, was, he, he later retracted it. Uh, he was a good scholar who later – Neil Postman maybe? I think he later retracted it. Yep. Yeah. But anyway, that was the point then. You, you get it. Okay, sorry to interrupt. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Um, I so I have another article. It's in the works right now at National Review. So you can't go find it yet, but within the next <laughs> couple of days, it'll be there. Um, California just adopted a new math statewide math curriculum uh, that basically is doing away with exactly what you said. Math class is no longer for geometry or learning your times tables or practicing long division and things like that. Um, the girls focus on teaching for social justice. They have lots of examples and vignettes and what they want the math class to look like. And kids are going to be not, again, not practicing their times tables, but using their math to determine what is a fair minimum wage and things like this. Uh, decentering the need to find the right answer. It's all about ideology at this point. And it is, it's called, if we want to get technical, it's called critical pedagogy. This idea that schools are supposed to be the centers from which, from which progressive, radical social change happens. Schools are not supposed to be, you know, where we teach kids math and reading and form them intellectually and form and mold their characters. It's explicitly said. That's not what schools are supposed to be for anymore. They are supposed to be for indoctrination. They are supposed to be for advancing a progressive worldview. I think I, fr- I saw the phrase you used on Twitter that the California framework is revolving around something called sociopolitical consciousness. Boy, you couldn't sound more Marxist if you tried. Yeah, I mean, the, we keep coming back to this Wall Street Journal article, yep. one of the most most taught books in schools of education to, perspe- to prospective teachers is called uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire, and it's a Marxist book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, he references the Russian Revolution and the Maoist Cultural Revolution of what his ideas look like when put into action. Uh, our schools are explicitly advancing something of a Marxist agenda. And I'm I'm not usually one to say that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I didn't used to either. I know, I know. I, didn't I start, steer so far clear from, you know, conspiracy theorizing. And then I look at a math curriculum that's telling teachers to raise the students 
political consciousness. And it's just what, what else are they doing except trying to indoctrinate kids? Yes, I'm with you. I used to not talk about it that way either, and now it's inescapable and unavoidable. I think uh, because I don't want to. But I don't want to. But they're telling us who they are. They are telling us who yeah. they are, and it's high time we believe them. I think, right? Yes, exactly. What do you tell parents? I mean, what do you tell parents to do in this environment? I mean, it's the homeschooling option isn't available for everyone for a lot of different reasons. Uh, some of the private schools, by the way, I have to tell you, Daniel, I don't know if you agree or not. Some of the private schools are just as bad. And just because it's private doesn't mean it's good. I've seen some lousy private schools. I have seen some good public schools, but I've seen some lousy. What do you tell parents? On the... Just what, how to, what, to, the, what they should parents. think, what they should do in raising their kids, you know? If, if it... I, was, I, was at a, I was at a Christian private school just last year uh, and was pulled in the office and chastised because I told a student that self-expression is not the only thing that matters, that there are other ethical imperatives and moral, objective moral considerations that we should think about other than just self-expression. And I was brought in the office and yelled at by my principal for that. And that's There's a private a, Christian yeah, that, school. Yeah, okay, to my point, yes. To my point, right. I mean, do whatever you can to get your kid in uh, classical charter school, in a Catholic school, in a Christian school that you know is going to hold their ground. I always say homeschooling isn't an option for everyone, but it's certainly a great option for a whole lot of people. Yeah. If you, if all you can do is send your kid to a private school, you need to be asking questions. You got to be watching what they're doing. Um, you know, looking over their work. We can't just send our kids to school anymore and trust that Miss Penny, who's been at the school for 30 years, is going to teach your kids phonics or their math facts. You got to stay involved. You got to send emails. You got to pressure. You got to go to school board meetings. You got to speak out. You got to get in contact with the media. Um, the stuff isn't going to end until parents call the ruckus about it. And until <laughs> we start also getting some lawsuits and things in there to put a stop to all of this. And thank you for that. And don't you agree, too, only about 50 seconds left, don't you agree, too, that the one of the, one of the top good signs of a good school is the welcoming of parent involvement? And when they want the parents out, that's a danger sign. That's always been my view anyway. Yeah, 100%. Why would a school not want a parent involved? Right. I've always wanted parents to be on top of their homework, holding their kids accountable. If I ever said, I don't want, a, like, that's just, that's so crooked and corrupt that you're going to keep a parent out of their own child's education. Mm -hmm. And yet that trend is, is rapidly moving forward, too. I mean, you hear that from NEA officials as much as the president of the United States. Maybe we'll talk about that next time. Daniel Buck, it was so great having you with us. Again, folks, his book, What is Wrong with Our Schools?, the Ideology Impoverishing Education in America and How We Can Do Better for Our Students. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You we'll talk soon. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Speaking of country roads, young David, you asked me a question that I thought we ought to Crowdsource. You got a crowdsource, okay. Yeah, you're you're evidently doing some kind of a barbecue event at your house this weekend. Yeah, I am. You know, I was just going to have some people over to the house this Sunday, and uh, we, we talked a while back, a, a while back, well, you know, maybe a couple weeks about my getting a used grill. Well, I found a used grill, and, you know, so I had 
wanted to have some people over this weekend and, you know, just wasn't sure the best way to do it with charcoal. I've never really experimented with that before. Yeah, Always charcoal's the way grill. to go. No, yeah. no, no, no. You want charcoal. Well, I, I got a charcoal okay. grill, so good, good, we've good. already made that step. Uh, all right, good, good. Yeah, do that. Yeah. It, it's a much better flavor. But you were wondering what you should do on on a on a big group with a with a with a bit of a budget there, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What's the best way to do it when I you know what to cook? What to cook? You're such an amazing chef. I mean, people need to watch your Instagram videos. But I think you know what you might want to try, and I would even eat them if you did it. Beef ribs. Okay, big ones. Yeah. yeah. I yeah, I bet long. you could marinate them overnight, and I bet it would be delicious. Okay. And how long do, of a cook time is that, though? Well, like I can't do everything for you. I don't know. You don't know. Okay. I've never done beef I just, ribs. You know, I, I can't sit by the grill for eight hours. I, <laughs> well, maybe you can. Yeah. But if the audience has a better idea for what might be an interesting barbecue for a large group of people— yeah, I would be interested to hear our audience. Yeah. I imagine we have a pretty diverse audience from where they grew up yeah. and their favorite types of barbecue. I'd be interested to hear what their sort of regional favorites are. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I don't know how to barbecue beef ribs, uh, but um, I've never done it. But uh, I, they're hard to find, by the way, in restaurants. You don't get them anymore. You don't find – there's only one restaurant I know that still sells that still sells. I know, them. too. You yeah. do? That sells beef two, ribs? Two locally, yeah. I'm not talking short ribs. No, 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 the big ones. Right, yeah. right. Okay. What are they? Well, uh, you know, since we're on the topic of yeah. barbecue, there's the place in uh, Tempe Town Lake area called Lucille's, which is a chain out of Long Beach. Yeah. And I went there often uh, to their California locations when yeah. I was at university out there. Yeah. And there is another place at the Arizona Grand on top of the hill. Oh, there is? They do beef ribs? They have an all-you-can-eat beef ribs for, I think it's under $30. No it's kidding. Starlight deal. is the one I know. Starlight okay, so on, now we have three on Miller, which is a great restaurant. Yeah. So this ought to be interesting. Robert Kennedy Jr. is going to be testifying in Congress in about a week. Yes, exactly a week, July 20th, before the Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. Good. Good. I mean, you know what's good about that? What's good about it is he will be he you know he's such an enigma. He stands for things in a way that makes conservatives kind of want to like him and kind of do, do like him. Mostly it has to do with censorship and the covid mandates. But you know the elemental truth is Ask him where he is on a lot of other things that we usually think about when we're selecting our candidates. You know, ask him where he is on issues of economic policy. Ask him where he is on issues of abortion. Ask him where he is on some of these other things. It'll be good for him to be in front of a bipartisan committee. I will tell you, this Democrat running for president, Prediction. We'll see if I'm right. I'm pretty sure, and I don't think it's going out on much of a limb to say so. But I bet he gets tougher questions from the Democrats than the Republicans. I mean, first of all, the majority in the House of Representatives has put together this committee and has called him because they think he'll be on their side on this issue he likely will be. But I think this is going to be the opportunity for Democrats to try and take him down and take him out because he has been such a thorn in the side. He's an enigma, you know. He's Someone was making the point the other day, you know, he's a, um, he's, he's, 
he comes from a dynasty and he, yet he campaigns against notions of dynasties. You know, he traffics in conspiracy theories while at the same time talking about, you know, conspiracy theory or going against government conspiracy theories. It's he's a real enigma. But that will be that will probably be the most watched hearing on Capitol Hill all year. By the way, was I right about the Chris Ray testimony? Was it news anywhere other than Fox and talk radio? Was it? No, it wasn't. We'll be right back. If you've been uh, following uh, the news on the education and culture front, this uh, many of you know may or may know of the group Moms for Liberty or have been reading the screeds against them. Uh, over at uh, the Free Press, Robert uh, Pondicio writes, In a breakout session in a windowless conference room at last weekend's Moms for Liberty Joyful Warrior Summit uh, in Philadelphia, Christian Ziegler, the chairman of the Florida Republican Party and father of three school-aged daughters, is stiffening spines. Dozens of attendees, mostly women, are nodding and taking notes as Ziegler explains how to work with local News media, your product is parental rights. Your product is protecting children and eliminating indoctrination and the sexualization of children. You're the grassroots. You're on the ground. You're the moms, the grandparents, the families that are impacted. The stories that you tell help set the narrative. One story above us, the ballroom floor of the downtown Marriott, is groaning under the weight of crowded press risers where camera crews have set up for the parade of Republican presidential hopefuls coming here to curry favor with the more than 600 Moms for Liberty members attending. Ron DeSantis held forth, Nikki Haley, Donald Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy are all on tap to speak there. It's an astonishing display of political drawing powder, excuse me, drawing power, considering Moms for Liberty didn't even exist three years ago. The candidates have all come to pay obeisance to the animating idea that has galvanized these women, that parents, not the government, should be in charge of how their children are raised and educated. Um, And yet, all you see is about them that's written about them when it's not from, you know, members, is negativity. Um, The nation described Moms for Liberty as hateful fascist bigots. The New Republic said the group has created nightmares for schools across the country. An article in Vice reported they have ties to conspirators. The Washington Post led with the Southern Poverty Law Center's designation of Moms for Liberty as an extremist group devoted to spreading messages of anti-inclusion and hate. When um, Ziegler's wife, Bridget, one of the original Moms for Liberty, started serving on the school board in Sarasota County, Florida, nearly a decade ago, the negative press reduced her to tears. Now, Ziegler tells the room, couple compared their bad press clips on date nights. You actually get to this amazing moment when you realize, hey, if they attack me, I can go raise money on this. I can get my message out by piggybacking on the attack, advises Ziegler. It's brutal to be on defense, he continues. Always play offense. Never apologize. Never, ever, never. That is important political advice. In politics, you're either on offense or you're on defense. You're either moving the ball on them or they're moving the ball on you. Um, 
let me give you just a little bit more. In 2021, the National School Boards Association was forced to apologize after a letter it sent to the Biden administration went viral, asking for federal law enforcement to stop domestic terrorism at school board meetings. While Moms for Liberty was not mentioned by name, the letter cited several incidents at which members had protested. Since then, 25 state associations have cut ties with the National School Boards Association. At the Philadelphia summit, a handful of mothers were, mothers were proudly wearing domestic terrorist T-shirts. Again, you can be on offense or you can be on defense. Um, a few years ago, he writes, if you had to bet on which parent organization could influence the 2024 election, the smart wager would have been on the well-funded National Parents Union, which calls itself an authentically parent-led organization, a label that Moms for Liberty would undoubtedly use to describe itself. The afternoon before Moms for Liberty kicked off their conference, the NPU held a sparsely attended rally in Philadelphia's Love Park to condemn its evil and divisive rival, Moms for Liberty, which it claimed seeks school book bans and a whitewash history lessons taught to children. What Moms for Liberty insists are efforts to keep pornography out of school libraries and to combat indoctrination about critical race theory and gender fluidity. NPU says these are attempts to attack and marginalize children of color. Far from it. Anything but it. Anything but. It's to respect them. It's to respect children. It's to respect children of all races. And it's to respect children of all creeds. And it's to respect children, most importantly, as children. As children, that's what Moms for Liberty is about. As Daniel Buck was saying, it's not banning and it's not erasing history to have age-appropriate lessons for these children. And if you want to understand why there is so much of an attack against Moms for Liberty, it's not only because of their success— But it is what they stand for. They stand for the kinds of things Daniel Buck was talking about, parental rights in education, parents having the right to say something about their children's education, the right to say something about their children's education that they pay for, never mind their First Amendment rights, but the fact that we all pay for these public schools. We all pay for them so much so that those of us that don't even have kids in them pay for them. We have a right to say that. We have a right to do that. And Moms for Liberty isn't some massively wealthy organization. Its most recent tax filings show a $370,000 filing of revenue. That's nothing in the world of nonprofits and movements. It's nothing. This author says their grassroots appeal is easily observable. At the summit, I ran into a neighbor who last year upended our small town in upstate New York with a failed campaign for school board, pushing back on government overreach and demanding a return to traditional education. What are the chances we'd run into each other here, he greets me. Probably 100 percent, I reply. I write about education for a living. He's here with his wife, who's thinking about launching a local chapter, and they are the Moms for Liberty couple from Central Casting. There was someone who wrote something on Twitter about, I think it was a chapter of theirs, that I thought was interesting, which is we love the, uh, we absolutely love the success of Moms for Liberty. But it's kind of sad in a sense that you don't see dads too. 
Where are the dads and where are the men? Now, it's an interesting question. It's an interesting point. I mean, I don't want – don't get me wrong. I I want moms for liberty and I want mama bears and I want these women who are their children's mothers and grandmothers active as as all get out. But it might be time for some dads to start standing up too. But, of course, it begs the question, where are the dads and where are the fathers? And that's a tougher, that's a tougher, more more systemically difficult question to answer and address. But in asking it, it highlights a systemic problem that needs to be dealt with too. Anyway, all credit to this group, Moms for Liberty. All credit to them and Arizona Women for Action here. But um, let's also think about what it should mean, could mean, and might mean to get dads involved a little bit more too. Or to just get dads. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. How do you think we're doing with the economy, folks? Bank failures, possible recession, inflation, stock market volatility. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily, you're paid monthly, and there are no fees in the secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi. Y-Refi is based here locally, and we encourage you to stop by their offices. They're on the 101 in Scottsdale Road. I've been there, and you won't get a sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign anything. When you meet with the team there, though, you'll see why I trust and like them so much, and you will too. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or call them at 888 888- why refi 34 that's 888 why refi 34 david harsani has a great piece over at um over at the federalist um summer is trying to murder you warns the washington post extreme heat kills more people in the united states than any other weather weather hazard is the first claim in this washington post piece warning about the deadly summer heat and it's certainly false First off, the only reason extreme temperature kills more people than other weather hazards is that deaths from weather have plummeted over the century. Even as doomsday climate warnings about heat, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, and droughts have spiked. Extreme weather accounts for only about one-tenth of a death for every 100,000 people in the United States each year. One-tenth of a percent of... One-tenth of... Death for every 100,000 people in the United States each year. Point one. The Post should be celebrating the fact that humans have never been less threatened by the climate. The Post warns that 30 million people in the U.S. may be exposed to dangerous heat today. That's a lot of people, even considering nearly all of them live in the southernmost spots in the country and it's the middle of summer. The Post counts anyone exposed to heat over 90 degrees as being in some level of danger. Fortunately, most Americans enjoy the luxury and health benefits of air conditioning, one of the great innovations of the past century. Nowhere in the piece do the authors tell us exactly how many Americans have perished from the oppressive heat. Anyway, it's around 700 people a year. If you liberally count heat as both the underlying and or contributing 
causes. It's about 400 people when heat is the underlying cause, and that's terrible. But also it's around 3,600 fewer people than those who drown every year. All right. Let's see what we got. Oh, yeah. Oh, this will be fun. You're going to like this guest. This this is going to be an important interview, folks, about drugs, about homelessness, about harm reduction, about political and social nonsense. You'll love it, I'm sure. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 